Hello, and welcome to Sex, Love, and Addiction. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Rob Weiss. I am a licensed therapist, sexologist, and author of numerous books on relationships, sex, and addiction, including Pro-Dependence, Moving Beyond Codependency, Sex Addiction 101, and Out of the Doghouse. Our website, sexandrelationshiphealing.com, offers information, resources, live, no-cost, interactive support, that means free, and most of all, hope to those struggling with or affected by profound cheating, as well as sex or love addiction and related intimacy problems. This podcast is primarily a forum for discussing sex, infidelity, love, and addiction in frank and informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you advice, opinions, and feedback on this very challenging subject from experts around the world. All are welcome here. Now let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Rob Weiss. I'm back again to join you. This is Sex, Love, and Addiction 101, as you know. And uh, now you know I'm always excited about my guests, but this particular guest I'm excited about in a different way. Um, my guest today is Sam Louis. Sam is a therapist, blogger, a speaker on cultural shame and addictions. Sam is an Emmy award-winning former broadcast journalist who continues to write, and his books include Asian Shame and Addiction, Suffering in Silence, and Slanted Eyes, The Asian American Poetic Experience. On a personal note, Sam is a first-generation immigrant from Hong Kong who grew up amidst three generations of addicts. <laughs> Welcome, Sam. <laughs> Hi, Rob. It's nice to have you have me on the show. Thank you. Yeah, well, that actually, you just encapsulated what makes this special, and I'm going to tell everyone this that I've known Sam for a long time. I don't have we ever met in person, Sam? I don't even know if we've. I think we have maybe once when I interviewed you. <laughs> right. So. So Sam was a broadcast journalist when I met him, and he was interested in working as a therapist, and specifically in the field of sex and relationship addiction. And I was a therapist in sex and relationship addiction, as you guys know, and he was interviewing me. And we've spent a lot of time back and forth over the years kind of chatting about what it would like to be a therapist, become a therapist, what's the best method. And then I talked to my friend Sam not that long ago, and he said, oh, well, I'm a therapist now. And I'm a, you know, and I'm writing and I'm helping my community and I'm working in sex addiction. And so I realized that today I'm interviewing Sam and Sam's not interviewing me. And now he's a therapist. And so congratulations, Sam. Thanks, Rob. And I think you can bring to this conversation. And, and the reason I wanted you here is a, a really a slant that I want to put more emphasis on, which is the either the immigrant experience or perhaps the minority experience, because what I think are people listening to this may or may not understand, especially if you don't go to 12-step meetings or you're not that involved in things like group therapy or even workshops and stuff, is that sadly, I, I truly believe sadly, there are several minorities that are underserved in America when it comes to addiction services and mental health, whether it has to do with cultural shame or religious issues or just how that culture looks at things. We don't see nearly enough African-Americans in treatment and getting the support they need. And we see the same in the Asian community where someone who is struggling tends to look inward rather than reaching outward to a therapist, to a 12-step meeting. They'll reach inward to someone in their community and they may or may not get their needs met because of the shame and maybe some other issues that you're, maybe maybe some cultural disconnects. So folks, the reason Sam is on really our discussion today is, you know, how does being a non-majority player in this culture, not being a white person, not being in the majority, and really coming from a culture that has its own norms and values that might be different than American culture, how do folks like that, like Sam, get help? And how is he helping people uh, in the Asian community find their way to healing? So that's really what we're talking about. And welcome, Sam. Yeah, well, that is a full-on discussion, and that's why I'm here. 
I think the biggest, one of the biggest challenges when it comes to ethnic minorities, and in particular those who come from an Asian background, in getting help, is the fact that they may not know it ex- uh, on a subconscious level, but explicitly they know that there's this piece of cultural Asian shame that's out there. And what I mean by shame is that Asian cultures are collectivists in nature. Uh, So for centuries on, everything is about honoring the family, the society, uh, the culture you grew up in, your nation, and very little if any, has to do with the individualistic side. So in America, we're always taught to think for ourselves, to get help, raise your hands, speak up, so on and so forth. But when you do that from a, from somebody who's deeply rooted in traditional Asian values, you're going against all of those group norms. Does that make sense? You know. Well, yeah, of course it does, because uh, I remember being in grad school, and I think we had a couple of Korean students. And you know, when you're and you know this, Sam, when you're in grad school for therapy, you have to role play asking questions, and you know, sometimes the questions therapists ask could be experienced as intrusive if you weren't, you know, but you're in a role, you're a therapist, you're going to ask that question. And it was very hard for the Asian, for these young Korean women to ask very personal questions or to even be in the role play part where they had to respond to personal questions, which you have to do in school to practice Mm -hmm. because, and it was really clear it wasn't who they were as people. It was, it was endemic to how they'd been raised and what they'd grown up with. And they didn't even really know how to access that kind of connection in a way that seems so sort of ordinary and everyday to your average American? I mean, everything has a means, a hierarchical uh, structure. A lot of this is based on Confucian views where uh, there's a very clear sense of order, the ruler versus the ruled, the parents over the child, uh, the husband over the wife, so on and so forth. And obedience is the common denominator growing up. So when we talk about the shame piece, what we're talking about, there are two sides to the uh, to the same coin. We have shame on one end, but we also have honor on the other. So everything, I remember when I was growing up, my parents taught me how to write my name in Chinese. And when I wrote Louis Fuyen is how it's uh, said, Louis is my last name, Fuyen was my Chinese name. They circled the Louis part and they said, hey, don't worry about your, your, your name, the Fuyen part. That doesn't really matter. It's your last name that you need to really focus on because everything you do from this point out, from this point on, is a reflection of your last name, our family name. So let's let's not disgrace it. Let's honor it. So that was the mentality I had as, as a very young, well, maybe five or maybe even younger than that. That's what I knew that you could, I had to honor the family name above all else. I have a question for you then, and this goes beyond addiction because I just simply don't know. It's an expend, it's sort of an expected standard in American culture, maybe even Western culture, that at certain point kids are going to rebel against their parents. You know, they're going to have that wonderful, loving, and mess childhood that we need to, to become the strong adults with self-esteem that we become if we do. But at a certain point, we also have to say, "Hey, mom, you know, I got to make my own decisions. Hey, dad, you know, bug off. Hey, folks, I'm going out if you like it or not because I'm now an adult and I have to demonstrate my individuality." That's it's almost endemic to being a teenager in America. Parents expect it. It's kind of what often happens. How does that play out in Asian culture? Do you guys not rebel? 
Uh, it probably plays out a decade or two later. So these the teenage rebellion years may happen in the mid-20s or maybe in the mid-30s because I get a lot of younger Asian Americans in the mid-20s or early 30s saying, hey, this isn't working for me. I said, oh, well, what is it? You're like, I've been doing all this to please my parents, whether it's a job or a relationship, but I'm not really sure how to navigate this world because if I do, if I continue on this this route of following my parents' desires, I know that I'm neglecting the individual self, um, especially when it comes to their careers and their relationships. And there's a lot of shame involved because they said, hey, they've hinted at it. And some parents on the extreme end, they might threaten suicide or like, hey, if you can continue dating that person, I'm going to commit suicide. And that person is usually of a different ethnic culture too that adds to the mix. You know, I, I, there's two pieces I want to drop in here. And then I think we really, you know, we could talk about this issue all day long because we both are fascinated with sociology and anthropology. And, you know, but I also know that it is the, in particular, in, in, in Asian culture in America, first generation kids have a really hard time because, you know, when they are, let's say, brought here at three, and this may be your experience, I don't remember how young you were when you came here. But what I hear, and I hear this in the Latino culture too, it's kind of like my parents are traditional. My parents say, I have to be home at this time. I have to speak in this manner. I have to dress in that way. I have to act. It's all a reflection of my family, et cetera. And then they go to school and they're faced with an American culture, which says, tell your parents to F off because we're going to go party. And that's sort of the standard. And and I understand that first generation kids really struggle. Uh, I, I guess I wonder if that was your experience. That was my experience. It was very, very confusing because I'm growing up in a, I go back to my, go back home, extended family members. They're telling me all the collective, collectivist virtues of harmony, obedience, listen to your parents, don't disagree with them. And then I go to school and I hear a very different uh, message of uh, speak up for yourself, stand up, talk, express your feelings. It's okay to criticize or not criticize, but at least challenge authority figures challenge opinions and this is that tussle that a lot of Asian Americans go through I think definitely the earlier generations the first and second generations but even some who are in the latter generations if they still have a lot of the traditional Asian values embedded in their in their families they still struggle with that so how does that affect the person who is, needs help with something and needs outside help with something. I guess if it's, and, and here I'll give you the, my best way of always thinking about this is, you know, if my girlfriend had, or if my wife had cancer, X, Y, Z, the community respond in this way. If my girlfriend or wife was an alcoholic, how would they respond? And I would imagine it that this difference while very acute in Western culture, meaning, you know, we rush in to help those people and families who have physical problems. We rush away from those families who have addiction and mental health problems because we don't understand them. We judge them. I would only imagine that's more profound in a culture like the one you're talking about. Right. I mean, getting help, just going to counseling could be considered as very shaming on the on the family. It's, you're not just shaming yourself. You're shaming the family. You're shaming your your lineage. And then there's a Chinese phrase when translated, it says you're you're shaming eight generations. Going back eight gener- generations is how deep the shame is. Okay, I got to say oy vey for that. Like, <laughs> acting out and shaming eight generations of family members that, you know, I, I thought my own shame. So I, do you have higher suicide rates in Asian culture? Because how, I mean, where do people go? What do they do? I mean, they're, if I'm acting out as, if I'm sexually acting out, 
and I'm a white American. You know, I got my own shame. I might have some church shame. I might have a little bit of shame mm -hmm. related to my relationship. And I might be living a double life or compartmentalizing my sex life from work or my family. But that's not the burden that you're talking about. There's some burden here where you're saying if I'm a deeply engaged Asian person with my culture, that when I am engaging compartmentalized sexual behavior that is secret, I'm shaming my mother, my father, my grandfather, my family name, the history of my family, all of it. That's a lot to live with. Oh, yeah. Just being like, I have some peers who are divorced. And if they, if their parents found out they were dating somebody of a different ethnic heritage, they, they literally told me that their parents would disown them. I mean, it's that, it's that uh, deep. The, the suicide piece, I do know statistically Asian countries rank pretty high when it comes to suicide in general. Some of that isn't necessarily the sexual shame. It could be related to academic shame, not feeling like they're getting into the right schools or getting into the top schools. Even in Japanese culture, they have a new new subset of primarily young men that live in their parents' home for extended periods of time because of the shame of not having quote-unquote succeeded. And it, the term is called hikikomori. I'm sure if you've heard of that. But even short of, short of that, suicide is also something that's viewed very differently. So I'm, very, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because in Asian cultures, suicide is actually one way that people feel they can regain their sense of honor if you've brought shame to the family. Wow. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, think about the, the, the Japanese samurai and the, uh, uh, it's called seppuku, where if, if they die and kill themselves, there's a kind of a ritual, then their family regains that sense of honor. So you're saying that it was a, it may already be instilled in someone more culturally clo close to traditional Asian culture that if I have a profound problem and I don't know what to do with it and it might shame my family or it would shame my family or it is shaming my family, really the best thing to do would be to just go get out of here, disappear, no longer be on the planet, and then they can mourn me but not be shamed by me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read a quick quote from a book titled With Respect to the Japanese. Suicide in Japan, often misunderstood in America, is the ultimate means of taking responsibility for having brought shame to one's group. And it's sometimes you see Asian politicians uh, making the headlines. They did something that was shameful in their eyes and they commit suicide. And it kind of makes sense when, when uh, I see somebody in a higher elevated position committing suicide amongst Asian countries. So you are thoroughly American, thoroughly trained in Western treatment methods, psychotherapy, addiction. I know a little bit about your education. So, you know, you've had a traditional Western psychotherapeutic and clinical education with some cultural emphasis, I'm sure, but that and everything we know about that process, reaching out to someone, opening up, making yourself vulnerable, telling your secrets, beginning to work through a problem involving your family because you're better off and you're going to do better if other people are involved with fixing your problem, not just you alone. Like all, I think every step along that way sounds counterintuitive for your culture. <laughs> so how do you take what you learned and make it possible for traditional Asian people to invite themselves in or to be invited in? That is still the, the biggest question that I have because I'm trying to reach more of an Asian American population struggling with shame 
on any spectrum. And as much as that's, you know, some people might say, oh, that's like shooting fish in a barrel because it's so it's so evident everywhere it's still hard for them to come in and i just reflect back on my own experiences of getting help for myself that was not easy to do because as americanized as i am i my parents moved us to the seattle area when i was five going to get help was everything that i knew was supposedly shaming of my family but it did so this is where it did help I had, at the time I was in Los Angeles, and there was a very progressive Asian American church and the head pastor, he had even talked about counseling in general, going to counseling with his wife. Mm -hmm. So you had a role model. Yeah, that I've never seen before. I was like, what? He's talking about going to counseling with his wife in front of all of us? This makes no sense. Well, the pastor is supposed to be perfect. I mean, that that and that, <laughs> that sort of runs through every culture, right? So this is what the person we're all looking up to, and he says yeah. he has problems. Yeah, and the, that level of vulnerability was so. And he talked about having premarital sex as a pastor. Like what? Mm. Like I am. This is just mind blowing. So he kind of garnered my trust early on. And when he learned about, uh, I was going through a divorce about fifteen years ago. And he said, Sam, you definitely need to consider counseling. And I don't remember taking much more than just his his encouragement and support. And from there, I, I started going to counseling. But it did take somebody that I personally had a relationship with, whom I respected, who I also felt could could be vulnerable to a certain extent. And that allowed me to get the help that I needed. So maybe you are now going to be that person, Sam, in a variety of ways. And, and and we were actually talking before we started the podcast about ways we might engage the Asian community online and in less threatening ways and more culturally sensitive ways. And who knows, Sam, we may have an, end up in business soon. <laughs> but what I'm curious about is, you know, um, what happens to the people who don't have the opportunity to have that role model and guide and they don't reach out for help, which sounds like most of the traditional population, what do they do if they have a drinking problem? What do they do if they have a gambling problem does it goes unresolved or uh, how does that work well i think that's where you doing what you do really comes into play and i do a little bit of, of it on my own when i can which is doing outreach helping people to diffuse the shame and you know in the asian community especially somebody with my clinical background if i'm able to share a little bit of my personal background because i mentioned kind of or you mentioned in my bio three generations of addictions in, in the past, I used to be very ashamed of that piece. Now it's, now I realize like I, I have to claim it. That's who I am. That's a part of my history, but this is also a part of my healing and my journey. And if I hide from it, then other people will never get the exposure that they need. So you have become that pastor yourself now, that that leader in your community who says, hey guys, it's okay to talk about this. I did, I am, and you're giving permission. I mean, what we're doing right now is giving people permission. But now I have a really difficult question, which is I can only imagine how a traditionally raised Asian American man like yourself dealing with sex problems. So, I mean, not, you're not just dealing with gambling. You know, It's not just like you've ruined the family fortune, which seems to be sadly more acceptable in Asian culture, gambling, and we'll talk about that, I hope, a little bit. But what if you were a woman? then what would you do? Because female sex addicts in Western culture struggle as all women struggle to, you know, because they are not expected to have these kinds of problems because they're women. But you and I know that women who are emotionally abused, sexually abused, neglected, it doesn't matter what culture, you know, people often say to me like, oh, sex addiction, that's like a Western thing, right? That's because we have all this morality and you know, all these <laughs> 
Christian or Jewish or whatever our values are in America around around sex. And and that's, it's really an America, because, you know, we're not like the Europeans where everybody in the family takes a sauna together. You know, we, we protect our body, <laughs> but I don't, whatever all that is. And, and people are really surprised when I say, well, I, I think trauma happens everywhere. Neglect happens everywhere. Uh, sexual abuse happens everywhere. It doesn't matter what culture, what class, you know, and since sexual problems, intimacy problems, and sex addiction comes out of most often early dysfunction, it doesn't matter where you're from. Well, that is going to be another layer of shame that I don't even ever get to see because partly because I think I'm a man. If I was an Asian American female, that might make it a little bit more acceptable. But that is like, you're a route, you are now, I think, hitting uh, ground zero when it comes to Asian American shame. Sexual shame in general population, it's probably the most shame-ridden area. And when I say sexual shame, it, it can mean addiction. It could mean all the way to the offending area. It could almost, it can also include victims, people who are uh, sex abuse victims. There's so much shame in that that they they don't know what to do with it. They don't really know how to how to get help because that might reflect once again breaking the the code of honor that they grew up in. Well, if you were sexually abused, you're still damaged goods, and if you're damaged goods, that reflects on your family. So we don't want to talk about any of us, you know, having a dent or a nick or a uh, you know any of those things going on. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. So Sam, there's a new book out. I wonder if you've read it. It's called Getting Off by Erica Garza. Oh, I have not. It's a great title. (laughs) I I bring up Erica. I did a podcast with her because she's really the first woman in American culture that I've met. She's a 39-year-old Latino woman. with. She's married. She has a two-year-old. Lovely person. And she was just you know, a horrible sex addict. I mean, she's just had a really bad time of it. And she has absolutely no shame talking about it. She's the first woman I've met but not in an exhibitionistic way, but more in a how sad for me that I had to go through this to get where I am today way, Mm. which I think is admirable. And the reason I bring it up is because this is the first time I've seen a woman, period, come out in popular culture with a major book, not just a book written by a therapist, but a major book and saying, I'm a woman and I have sexual problems. And I, uh, yeah, I I wouldn't have seen that coming. And even today, and I can't imagine that the happening in the Asian culture. Uh, I can never imagine that happening in the Asian culture. It's still hard for me, a clinician who's written about this, to be able to talk about it quite frankly. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's not easy because of some of the, the fears that I might have, like, oh gosh, how is, how is the church going to view me now that I've opened up about this particular area or peers? Because as you know, it's a headline-grabbing addiction, sex addiction. And for myself, there was no such thing as sex addiction in my mentality when I was five years old. It didn't just, there were all these other things that I think led to it. So kind of in short, I immigrated to this country. My parents are working. My dad's a cook at a Chinese restaurant. My mom's working at a different uh, Chinese restaurant as a waitress. Me and my two younger brothers are trying to figure out America on our own. We're basically latchkey, latchkey kids. 
And I wrote a poem actually talking about just this spirit of growing up without parents. Okay, so please, I would love your artwork. Your art is amazing. Please share it with us. Okay, so I have a, a, a one of one of the poems that I wrote was I'm from a Chinese walk. I'm from a Chinese walk of oolong tea and red envelopes. I am from a small orange house with matching shag carpet of bitter melon soup, rock cod fish, church's fried chicken with a strawberry drink. I am from raindrops outside falling on cherry trees in our backyard. I'm from weekly Chinatown restaurant dinners, playing pinball at the arcades, and swimming in the lake during the summers. I'm from always smiling and happy, even if something's wrong. I'm from don't shake your leg, it's bad luck, and listen to your teachers, and stay away from bad people. I'm from the religion of work, make money, and bowing down to dead ancestors. I'm from police sirens outside, and keeping all my fears inside. I'm from ashamed of my heritage growing up, my language, my food, my customs. I'm from hating my body, my skin, my legs, the moles dotting my face. I'm from kissing actresses on TV with no kisses at home. I'm from the weight of ancestors and expectations, keeping me shamed and thinking I'm not good enough, the oldest son who's failed. So I wrote that uh, maybe a couple years ago, and I... I just periodically go out back to poetry because it evokes something different in me than just writing, just blogging. And a couple of lines really stood out when it talks about just the evolution of how I became a sex addict, I guess, was just this desire to really have parents to really connect with somebody, a mother or father. And I wrote, I'm from kissing actresses on TV with no kisses at home, because I remember that's what I did. I went up to the TV, I would see actresses, soap operas or whatever, I would try to kiss the screen, only to be met with like, oh my gosh, there's like dirt on my face or the fuzz from the TV. The, you know, the TV is dirty. That's not a real person. But that's how much I really longed for emotional intimacy. Which I just want to comment and, and excuse the interruption, but for those who are not familiar, you know, what Sam's talking about is emotional neglect. And it is a key indicator for sex addicts that when we are at that age where any child would expect to get so much attention, so much validation to be the center of the world, and they need that in order to grow up and have self-esteem and rely on people. Children who are profoundly neglected have to figure out for themselves how to feel good about themselves, how to distract themselves, how to comfort themselves. And when you're a little kid, you don't have that many places to go. You can go into fantasy. You can go into pleasuring yourself. You can maybe read a book. But other than that, you know, you're not really that smart, that sophisticated. And so much of addiction comes out of that period where a child has to learn how to survive on their own. Thanks for adding that piece. Yeah. The neglect wasn't, it wasn't just a, it, it wasn't like, okay, I'm neglected and boom, I'm looking at pornography. I do remember having so many other addictive uh, tendencies, if we can call it addictive. I remember as young as, as soon as I learned how to play basketball, pick up a basketball, because I grew up in South Seattle, which is a predominantly African-American neighborhood, basketball was kind of elevated. So I got to play basketball. And I remember always at any chance I got, let's leave home. Something about home I don't like, let's leave home. And it wasn't like there was abuse in the home. There wasn't abuse, but it's what you alluded to. There was neglect. neglect. I didn't like that feeling, so I went to play basketball hours at a time. And if we can call it compulsive, it was, because I was playing by myself in the rain. I mean, this is Seattle, so it didn't matter if it was in the winter or the cold. I'm playing basketball by myself. 
Okay, Sam, that poem, you know, playing basketball in the rain, I think you need to write that poem. <laughs> but again, I, I, I want to say to everybody, this is important because when we talk about neglect, we're not saying there wasn't food on the table. We're not saying that his parents didn't greet him with love and affection when they were there or glad to see him. But, but there was a distance that could not be broached and a need that every child had that wasn't being met. And I don't think parents, you know, some parents are just too ill to meet those needs, mental illness or addiction. Some people are, are just trying so hard to work three jobs and keep everything going that they forget that the most important thing is to engage their kids. So how do you engage kids when the kids can't speak to the parents? Because there's a cultural barrier and we are not very proficient. My, my proficiency is now in English. My parents' proficiency is in Cantonese because we're from Hong Kong. So now we have another layer. In addition to them not even having the emotional skills, we have another language barrier. Huge. So Sam... I, I want to ask you, in the short time we have, somehow, I, I remember talking to you, I don't know how long ago it was, it must have been like eight or 10 years ago when you were still in journalism. And, you know, you sounded sad then. Mm. And you sounded not like a, you didn't sound strong as a man. And to me, you sound neither sad and quite strong in yourself, like sitting within yourself now, like you know yourself, you feel comfortable with yourself, you just sound like a different person. And I, I'd like if you could give some sense to people, how did you get there? How did you get from being a scared little Asian boy inside of a young adult body who was betraying everything that he said to himself and his culture and his family and end up comfortable in your own skin? Like, what is the process that you took in, in if you can give it briefly? Years of therapy. <laughs> um, but actually getting comfortable in my own skin because I always grew up thinking I was defective. There's something wrong with me. I'm growing up in a, here's the, uh, the assimilation piece. I'm hating the fact that I'm Asian because I, while most people want to be white, uh, we actually wanted to be black because that was the predominant culture. Like, yeah, I want to be black. Why can't I be black? You know, my early role models were R&B singers. Like, oh, I want to be the first Asian American R&B singer. I want to be the first uh, Asian American NBA basketball player. Like these were, this is what was pulsating through me. But how did I go from this scared piece well, I didn't know myself then. And the reason why you may have noticed that in me, because even in journalism, I wasn't sure what I was doing. I was going into a field, television journalism, which is very public as a, as a news reporter. And I remember part of this was cultural because I asked my mom, my parents wanted me to go into something honorable, which would have been- Oh, I'm sure. Not your, I don't think, yeah, either you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a surgeon. I don't hear or, you know- Right. I said, well, mom, I, I don't, I don't, that's not how my brain works. That's not going to work. And then they said, well, what about teaching? I said, eh, I guess I could do that. Um, so initially I was supposed to go down the teaching route, but that's where I kind of had my rebellious phases. The last quarter in undergrad, I said, nope, I'm going to go down the journalism route. This is what I want to do. So your Western American, your Western American values won out. <laughs> yeah. It kicked in right in the early twenties, but I remember I was doing it for this is with some therapy involved. I told myself, because I asked my parents, my mom specifically, like, hey, I want to be like these people, the newscasters on TV. She grew up watching the news all the time, all the time. Part of it is to learn English. Part of it is to be somewhat educated on what's going on. And I thought maybe if I got, in, got onto television news, my mom might respect me. She might accept me. She might, in, in essence, love me. And give you all the attention she was giving to Walter Cronkite <laughs> or Tom Brokaw. Yes. 
but here's another one. I, I was not very therapeutically minded because I was still in my early 20s or what have you, or even yeah, when I was making this decision, I was telling myself, you know, even if my mom doesn't accept me, if I'm on TV doing TV news, well, I'm getting acceptance somewhere that at least the world will accept me. That is just how much I was craving uh, acceptance from my parents. I think every, well, I don't know if everyone knows, but we know, you know, that there's a time in life when you really need to get and get and get and get and be the center of attention and get and get and get, and you should be the center of attention. But when that's, once that time passes, somewhere around seven, if it doesn't get resolved, meaning you don't get all of those, as much of those needs met as possible, you're going to walk around as an adult with that little seven-year-old inside looking to get all that attention that you're too old to get, but you still want. And I can understand, you know, having sex with as many people as I can find, uh, being on TV, you know, being a politician, maybe. Um, these are ways to think. The idea being, well, if all these people are looking at me, admiring me and appreciating me and valuing me, then I might have value. It's kind of an outside in approach, which, by the way, does not work. Right. So that's probably what you were noticing. So much of this outside in, it was just literally a facade that was waiting to break. And leading up to that piece was years of, okay, I talked about the basketball. Then I started drowning myself out in music, like all kinds of just listening to CDs, say the same song playing over and over again. Because these were very isolatory behaviors for myself. Whether there was TV, it was a way to self-soothe. It's self-soothing. Yeah, I had I had encyclopedias and books that I read over and over and over again. But what you're really talking about, and I think that's important for the sex addict or the partner to hear, is that many of us survive difficult childhoods, whatever they are, by using fantasy. Mm-hmm. And whether that's fantasy a ball player or fantasy of reading a book over and over again or listening to certain music over and over and over and over again, we can lose ourselves in those worlds and feel comforted in the absence of adults that leave us feel loved and appreciated. But the problem is when we get to be adults and we need to be comforted and loved and appreciated, <laughs> we turn to fantasy rather than turning to people because we never learn to trust that. This is something I really do want an answer from for you, which I think you can help. There is, at some point in this podcast, there's going to be a young Asian American or Asian man, Korean, Japanese, South Korean, Chinese, whatever he is, listening, or maybe a woman. And she's going to think, wow, you know, there's this guy named Sam Louis, and he kind of did it and he kind of figured it out. And, and I have this problem and I'm right where he was when he was 24 or 28 or whatever. What would your advice be to them? What would be some first steps they could take knowing the culture that they've come from to begin to move into healing? Well, hopefully the first thing I'm thinking of is, is there another advocate who can walk beside them of their same or similar ethnic heritage? Because that was so vital to me. You know, I felt so isolated, divorced, sex addiction, Los Angeles, big city, you know, away from all my close friends here. I needed some level of support. And, you know, it was just kind of by happenstance that my pastor understood it. He was able to affirm it, even though he didn't struggle in this area. So, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to underline this. So find a role model, find a role model, find a peer, find someone that you can talk to who you relate to, who would understand your shame and your challenges, but that with whom you will be fearless in explaining what you're struggling with. That would be the first step. I, I think so because, well, first step is getting help, asking for help in any way. But I think in terms of ongoing uh, recovery, we need to find somebody who looks like us. There's kind of a joke that I sometimes throw at others. Like there's no such thing as Asian American anonymous because nobody would go to the room. <laughs> but if there was such a room, that would be such a healing place because so many of us need to see somebody of our 
cultural heritage going through this. I happened to be in a group therapy setting where one of the guys was part Filipino. And just to hear him be there, even though everybody else was Caucasian, just sealed it for me. It made me feel okay to be there. I know it sounds maybe weird to have to have another person of your ethnic background or somewhat similar, but no, it's that important to have that level of identification. It's kind of like when we hear in today's news, oh, so-and-so was the first African-American to do this or the first woman to do that. Same thing in recovery. If you see somebody else like yourself, it is a very affirming experience that I never knew that I needed until I was actually in it. So I know that in, in Los Angeles, for example, and because I've done some trainings for these folks, there's like a Pan-Asian Addiction and Counseling Center that's a nonprofit where someone can go and find, are there such, where online or are there books or like, because I believe actually, I don't believe the first step is asking for help. I think the first step is educating yourself. I, I, I think the first step is reading some books, getting some information, going online and so that you can see where you are in terms of the problem and then reaching out for help. I mean, that's sort of my thought about it because sometimes people reach out for help and they're not even really ready. Oh, yeah. True. So just learning what you're dealing with and where you're on the continuum of the problem and how others have dealt with it and, you know, as many webinars, podcasts, websites, books that you can read, you know, all that stuff. Are there any books specific to Asian culture or people who have your experience that would be useful in terms of mental health or addiction kind of opening up? Have you Did you read anything or did you have to read with a filter? You know, I read the generic books that are talking more about therapy and Asian American psychology. There wasn't necessarily, I don't remember seeing anything specifically about addiction. No, no, you're going to write that book, Sam. <laughs> I already wrote it. That's it. The Asian shame and addiction, suffering and silence. So listen, I'm going to invite you back because we have a lot of stuff we can talk about. But I want to ask you before I go, I know there are going to be people who are listening who just want to talk to you. They're going to want to talk to you for five minutes and say, hey, Sam, you know, what What? What do you recommend I do? Or, or I live in Ohio. What show, who can I talk to? Or, you know, or I'm a Chinese pastor and what can I tell my flock? You know, uh, do you have a website or something? way that people can reach you directly? Sure. Uh, my website is samlouiemft.com, MFT standing for Marriage and Family Therapist. And then my last name is spelled L-O-U-I-E. Um, I have a Psychology Today blog as well, but everything's listed on my primary uh, therapy website, samlouiemft.com. Sam, I am proud of you. I am impressed with you. I am um, really happy for you. And I think that just this conversation has stimulated so much for me in terms of things that I know I can do to grow outreach to communities that are different than mine. I'm going to be calling you up. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I really appreciate having switched roles. And and I still remember vaguely that interview that I had with you in, in LA because I was doing a story about healing and addiction uh, primary, I think primarily in the sexual realm. That's why I ended up interviewing you. And it was like, it was also a, the beginning of my own recovery process before I even thought about grad school. Yeah, I noticed, Sam, I have to say, and I'm going to let it go with this, that you were a very curious journalist. You didn't just call me and ask me the questions for your interview. You you wrote me later. You asked about therapy. You I was like, something, <laughs> something about this guy. I think I'm going to be talking to him again. So congratulations on your growth. And most importantly, Thank you. anyone who takes the time to grow beyond themselves and want to help other people in their community, I take my hat off to. And, you know, I can only do so much for Asian Americans in this culture. I can only do so much for African Americans in this culture because that's not where I come from. But you can, you know, you can do what you can do. And I hope to pull you in as much as possible to help. Thank you, Sam. Great. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye for now. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com 
www.thepatchworkshop.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.